How can we make the world better? By making ourselves better. The Dr. Joe Show explores how you can make positive personal change by using his groundbreaking and highly effective I Am approach to understand who we are and why we do what we do. Your small changes can have big effects. Join us now for the Dr. Joe Show with Mark Stiles of Stiles Law, Thomas McCoy, and your host, Dr. Joe Schrand. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Oh, Tom, that was wonderfully creative. That was terrific. Nice one. Oh, thank you. Thank you. It, it, It just adds, you know, so much. People now know that we're now starting the Dr. Joe show. So I appreciate that. Would you please introduce our guest for tonight? Absolutely, Dr. Joe. Tonight, we are honored to have Dr. Jeff Kane, MD. Jeff Kane has helped people understand and cope with substance use disorders for more than 50 years. He served as Chief of Addiction Services at the Brattleboro Retreat from 2003 to 2023. In 2017, he founded Meeting House Solutions, LLC, an organization devoted to promoting resilience and recovery at the community level. Dr. Kane is board certified in internal medicine and addiction medicine, a distinguished fellow of the American Society of Addiction Medicine, a member of the Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers, a certified group psychotherapist, and author of Inner City Alcoholism and the Two Pillars of Recovery Workbook. Jeff is a graduate of Boston College, Yale School of Medicine, and Yale School of Public Health. He trained in internal medicine and social medicine at Montfiore Medical Center. Welcome to the Dr. Joe Show. Yeah, welcome, Jeff Kane. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Dr. Joe. Great to be here. It is so much fun having you here. So just so people know, Jeff and I go back when um, we were both writing books and we were attending Julie Silver's book writing contests and a conference, things like that. And we, we met there and been colleagues ever since, really. And and Joe, how many books have you written since then? Um, five. Hundred. <laughs> yeah. yeah, five. Julie Silver was fantastic. Really, really great. But you have this fantastic. I mean, it's it's so good. Could you tell us about it? The two pillars of recovery workbook, what people with addiction need to know and do for lasting sobriety. Let's hear some of your wisdom on this, Jeff. Well, I'll I'll describe that this grew out of my first decade or so working full-time in addiction medicine, late 80s, 1990s. And I was dealing pretty much exclusively with people that I now describe as in the deep end of the pool of their substance use disorders. People who had had previous treatments for alcohol addiction or opioid cocaine issues, whatever. And they were in a hospital setting for uh, withdrawal management sometimes, and then as much rehabilitation as we had time with that patient. And in those days, people would be in treatment for three or four weeks sometimes. And as I began to listen over and over again to the stories, everyone's different. Everyone has a different story. And there were two themes that popped out for me that the people who were back in treatment, who didn't keep going after the first treatment, had had made a couple key mistakes. One was if they didn't make enough changes in their lifestyle, if they didn't, uh, people would in recovery would say, you have to change your playmates and your playgrounds. You have to get away from people, places, and things that can trigger 
the seeking out and using of substances over and over again. So I tried to find various ways to get that message across. And rather than say, don't do this, don't do that, I came up with the positive phrase, keep your distance. Yeah, nice. And people also would, if they went to meetings at all after treatment, after a while they would stop going. Or they would keep their defenses up. They would continue to do image management instead of being honest and and humble in their connections with people. And the exhortation that went with that behavior change is ask for help. Keep your distance, ask for help. And around 2001, I was in a group room uh, with individuals with co-occurring disorders having a discussion about addiction recovery. And there was a table in the room that had a pedestal on either end. And I looked at the pedestal and pointed to it and said, this is what you need for recovery. You need a pedestal on each end. You need two pillars to support recovery. Now, this is in addition to whatever medication or residential treatment or special treatment techniques people need. But And as I developed the concepts, Keep Your Distance, Ask for Help speaks to the neurobiology of addiction where there are changes in the primitive part of the brain, just like Pavlov's dogs that would drool when they heard the bell. People who are exposed to whatever the bell is for their substance use will use regardless of their intentions. And asking for help can build the resilience and insight to change all that. The workbook is what I hope is a compassionate presentation of the neurobiology and the practical wisdom of all these people who shared the mistakes with me so I could pass them along. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it, it, it does. It's, um, it's great. I mean, what a, what a wonderful moment for you to be there with the table, with the, the two things on either side and have that insight. What was, what was that moment like for you when you just realized that these were the pillars? To me, it's all about helping people and helping people involves helping them lighten up about themselves and emphasizing the biology of it when people are so involved in deep in self-loathing and self-judgment. Um, it, it, it kind of makes it more matter of fact. And it, hey, you know, understand this. There's nothing, it's not a big deal. Just be practical about it and keep your distance and ask for help and right. get better already. Right. Absolutely. And, and it is, it is about brain. I mean, we speak a lot about this on the Dr. Joe show you, know, you and I share that, that passion of working with folks who are struggling and challenged by substance use. Um, and one of the things that, that we say is, you know, it is brain-based. So addiction, it's not about morality. It's about mortality. It's just the way the brain is. So relax. You know, there's so much self-judgment and self-loathing, just like you say, which contributes then to blocking whatever pleasure you may have. And then your brain says, well, you know how to get pleasure. Go use some drugs and alcohol. You know, when you, the name Pavlov rings a bell, you, you, hmm. you get that. So the name Pavlov rings a bell, but, um, <laughs> so, but that's what it is, right? You, you can't, you can't have a trigger, which is what you're talking about. You know, keep your distance. You can't have a trigger without a memory. Would you say that that's true? Yes, I think it's pretty, it's maybe more complicated. Um, every time I talk to a neuroscientist about memory and how it works, um, they tell me we don't know yet. Um, I, I remember, but I remember them saying that. <laughs> oh, do so, false memories count? False memories too, absolutely. False memories, all sorts of things. But 
But, you know, because you, you talk about keep your distance, which makes so much sense. Why do they have to keep their distance? Because probably in the workings of memory, like you're saying, one thing is associated with another. And if they don't keep their distance, they can be back in the soup of active addiction again. I've, I've likened it to two magnets. If you move two magnets closer together, if it's a North Pole and a South Pole, you get them close enough, they jump the rest of the way. You don't need to add energy to the system. And I had one patient, I, I didn't give him too much credit. He didn't have an academic background, credit for school learning. But but he said, well, I want to be like two South Poles. As if I get too close, I want to be repelled away. And he certainly had the concept down cold. That's great. That's, that's, that's a great image, too. It does. You just get drawn into it. Before you know it, you are stuck again. We were talking about Pavlov and the conditioned response. You wanted to stick with that for a moment. The essence of addiction is, is having a behavior that does not reliably respond to the person's own intention. So people break promises to themselves. They do things that go against their own values. And that's the sort of person that the two pillars of recovery, keep your distance, ask for help, addresses. I wanted to share a cartoon uh, about a person who's approaching a door. And there's a doorbell and a name tag. There's a big sign on the door, though, that says, do not ring bell. Please knock. We'll explain later. And the <laughs> nameplate under the doorbell is I, Pavlov. <laughs> very nice very nice love it you must have had several dogs in the house do not ring bell for, for people who don't get it that's it's a great joke all right so okay so the, the the two pillars of recovery speaks to individuals who really have major disconnect between intention and behavior so they may be using sort of all the time and it's like they're on a treadmill and they may need a lot of help besides learning these two behavior changes. They may need medication, you know, buprenorphine or methadone for an opioid use disorder, naltrexone for opioids or alcohol medication. I think it's unfortunate that long-term residential treatment has sort of fallen off the landscape of, of addiction treatment. And particularly people who are severely affected by addiction, who may have had a series of uh, head injuries or uh, mental illnesses that make them more impulsive and more vulnerable to reinstituting use, some sort of custodial and rehabilitative care can make a life-saving difference. And you were, you were the head of the Brownable Retreat for, for two decades. I mean, what people would come in there for weeks. Well, um, not so much on my watch. I, I came here in 2003, three days to two weeks. If somebody had a serious <laughs> mental illness along with addiction, we would have more time, but but it was okay. still three days to two weeks to try to manage a behavior response to the world that a person has had potentially for decades. But you get three days, and when human interactions are respectful and empathic and supportive, and people are heard, and their autonomy is recognized, sometimes they will take that on the road and do very well. Yet the more resources, material and mental people come in with, the better their prognosis. It's the people who have very little when they come in who need a lot of that ongoing treatment and support and don't necessarily get it these days. And that's where the second pillar comes in, asking for help. 
yeah, probably since uh, Alan Leshner was the head of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, we've been using the his tagline, that sort of addiction is a brain disease. And that's very useful at understanding what's going on and the automaticity of the behaviors that can be involved. The downside of that tagline, though, is that it doesn't give enough credit to the community for what's wrong. And mm. the judgments that exist in the community and the stigma that's there inhibit people from asking for help Absolutely. And, and make the availability of addictive substances all too easy, which promotes new addiction and promotes reinstatement of old addiction. It reminds me of uh, Dr. Joe, when you talk about why you should, shouldn't yell at your kids is that you teach them not to come to you. Mm -hmm. That's right. Mm. That's right. Jeff, just, you know, th this is completely simpatico with the I am approach. I mean, it, 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 it really is because that's what we are, are saying to people. We don't, the, the disease model of addiction, I think, was an important step away from just saying you're a bad person. But it still carries with it a stigma just because it's a disease. Um, and the I am is saying, you know, you're responding the best you can to the four domains of your home domain, your social domain, the biological domain, and the I see, the way you see yourself, the way you think other people see you. You have to figure out first don't you think why somebody started using? What was, what was the reason for that first use of anything? And at what age does, do you think it, it, it is more dangerous to start using it all? The, the research all shows the earlier people start, the worse the outcomes. Yeah. Um, individuals who are family history positive, positive for alcohol addiction, for example, if they start drinking it, 12 or 13, the future risk of a serious alcohol problem is 58, 59, almost 60%. If they postpone that first drink till 19, 20, 21, the risk is more like 25%. So that it more than doubles the risk to start early. And it's likely that other substances have similar adverse effects with early age onset. And, and substances like cannabis can have serious mental health complications, psychosis or whatever, um, if started early. Yeah, people don't really think that way, but they should. I mean, just because weed is legal in Massachusetts doesn't make it safe. You know, exactly. Guns are legal and cars are legal and prescription pain medicine is legal. It doesn't mean it's safe. Yeah, we definitely find that the kids, they just start using uh, weed, tobacco, alcohol, um, and a lot of them just, they're just running now. They're, they're hooked. So what, what we are looking at is, I want to know what you think about this. We have a lot of people whose first time substance use was because of low self-esteem. Do you find that that is in the population that you've worked with all these years? Um, sure. The adverse childhood experiences research which shows that chaotic homes and neglect mistreatment predisposes to substance use disorders. Negative self-talk, shame, low self-esteem predisposes to substance use. And the popular image of addiction, popular as in public or whatever, that people are chasing pleasure, there's a lot to that. I mean, the kick of a lot of these addictive substances, cocaine or whatever, is like five times the kick of food or sex. So people like it. They want to 
go for it some more. But that same dopamine kick gives relief from displeasure. And a lot of people are avoiding physical, but mostly emotional pain when they start to use. And in terms of the changes in the primitive part of the brain, the conditioning process, pleasure is a positive reinforcement, relief from displeasure is a negative reinforcement. Um, um, Pavlov's dogs got to drool because of a positive reinforcement, but but they could have been trained a different way. And and that reinforcement is in the limbic system. I mean, generally, would you say it's in the limbic system, the more primitive part of our brain? Yeah, and and I, I think of brainstem and limbic system because mm-hmm. the sort of drives to eat or procreate or hypothalamic more than limbic, but I sometimes have lumped the limbic system and the brainstem as the feeling brain, as opposed to the thinking brain and, and tell people how the feeling brain gets underestimated all the time. And we're driven more by that than other things. Um, you mentioned the IM model before, and I'm glad we started talking about it rather than waiting till the end, because I think in that model, you are looking to help people become mindful of how complicated they are and how reflects something I've been saying for a number of years. There's more to who we are and more to why we do the things we do than what meets our own mind. Yeah, it's true. You're, look, you're looking to help people understand the more primitive aspects that they can accept and love along with the rest of it themselves mm-hmm. um, and also be watch, watch out for them. Right. Absolutely. That's exactly it. It's, it's saying no one's broken. You're doing the best you can in response to the domains. Here's your roadmap. It tries to break down the chaos of life into those four domains, your home, the social, the biological, and I see the way I see myself, the way other people see me. So yeah, you're absolutely right. And, and you know, I've, I've also sort of simplified things in the work by using the limbic system as one entity, part of the brain, and the neocortex, the new brain, neo-neocortex brain, especially the prefrontal cortex. And I think, you know, what, what you're saying here absolutely fits with that because both pillars are prefrontal cortical functions. The one is saying, keep your distance. In other words, you have to anticipate what would happen next if you go there and get triggered, whatever it is. And the other prefrontal is ask for help. You have to anticipate that it's okay to be part of a group and to ask for help, get reminded of one's value, and that will help you keep your distance. This is such an important discussion for folks. We're talking about substance use. We're talking about just great book about the two pillars of recovery, and it's a workbook, and it's, it's wonderfully concise. It's readable. It's synthesizing a lot of neuroscience so that Anyone can use it. It's translational. It's great. But we were talking a bit about neuroscience and especially about these two major parts of our brain, the limbic, the emotional brain, and the neocortex, the new brain, the prefrontal cortex in particular. Maybe you can just tell our audience a little bit more about those from your perspective. Feelings drive far more behavior than many people realize. Freud gets credit for realizing that there's sort of an unconscious part of our operation as well as a conscious part. And I like psychologist Robert Ornstein has said, we're worse off than Freud thought. Yeah, yeah. Because he uses, I put it in quotes, unconscious decisions go on constantly inside the head, playing with unconscious and decisions. 
triggers for action. And I think with your IM model, Dr. Joe, you're getting people to lighten up, understand how complicated they are and work with it, not judge it, work with it. Mm. And when I discuss addiction with people who may not have addiction, I'll ask them, look, have you ever decided that you were not going to have a second helping or you were not going to have a dessert and then you reached out and took it? That action without decision or action despite decision is what goes on sometimes almost continuously with people who have serious addiction. And as you do with being not broken, um, you sort of normalize the human condition so people can get more comfortable with it and get practical and work with it. I think this sort of looks to do the same sort of thing. Yeah. I mean, how are you meant to change something if you don't know why it's happening? So your model is absolutely helping people understand the steps, the mechanism that happens, why you reach for that second drink, that third drink, that fourth, without even thinking about it anymore. Part of the problem with full, I'll, I'll call it full-blown addiction, and terminology is tricky these days because when people say substance use disorder without an S on it, they're usually talking about addiction. Mm-hmm. When people put an S on it, substance use disorders, they're talking about a range of difficulties, some of which has this disconnect between intention and action, and some of which may not. It's tricky for the people struggling in the deep end of the pool, because in addition to having behavior that's not chosen, their prefrontal cortex executive brain function is messed up. Neuropsychologists talk about an altered motivational hierarchy, meaning that what's salient or most important to the person in this moment is more of whatever the substance is. Mm -hmm. Um, that takes precedence over their safety, personal health, behavior, legal jeopardy or whatever, even the well-being of their children. Absolutely. Yeah. And understanding that that's part of the neurobiology helps me have compassion for people who do things that don't make sense and hurt others. Um, It also helps them to have more compassion for themselves. You know, the things you described, absolutely, I've seen as well. And so many people in the community do blame the person who's addicted. You know, they, they hold them accountable. They shame them. They stigmatize them. What's that about, Jeff? Why do we do that? We humans are hard on people who we view as different. I'm not like that. Even within the um, group of people who have substance use disorders, people will establish a pecking order. I'm not like those people. Mm. Um, And I think if we're going to find our way as a human population, if we're going to find us, if we're going to find our way out of the various messes we have, including addiction and substance use disorders, we have to get better at not judging ourselves and not judging other people. I think it's a lot of, a lot of it is an out of sight, out of mind approach. It's like someone's stigmatized or ashamed enough. They'll exactly, they won't come forward and, Ties in a little bit to what I heard the other day, Jesse Waters, this was low even for him, but saying that homeless people need to be stigmatized more, that they should be treated for, quote, what they are. These are people who have failed at life and are on their deathbed. You want them invisible. You don't want to help them. You just don't want to look at them. Yeah, that's pretty scary. That, That leads to indifference, and that indifference leads to all sorts of abilities to hurt another person. And to watch that person getting hurt. We've seen indifference in the world. Except for 
personal pronoun use, I try I try real hard not to even use the word they anymore. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, the other word that that I really have a hard time with and that I've been trying very hard for a long time to get people to stop using is the word disorder, you know, because without meaning to, um, I think, you know, we, we assign the word disorder with the best of intention to try to distinguish a group of people who needed help and compassion. But by doing so, we did create that I'm not like that mentality. Mm-hmm. That group is disordered, which means not sure I can really trust them. And that's what substance use is really about. Uh, we have created a group of people that we can't trust. I, I think that brain science is also important for the person who is struggling with addiction to understand that that's not their fault either. It's convoluted in a way because people with addiction will say, I just want my family to trust me again. Yeah. And my worry with that is that in saying that they're naive about addiction. The nature of addiction is that the individual cannot trust themselves. Yes, that's right. And if they if they kind of recognize that, own that about themselves, and ask for help to have boundaries and uh, containment and, and distance keeping, then they can thrive very well. It's a matter of being, I don't know, humble enough to accept those limitations. You know, people who are allergic to peanuts tell the world about it, and Lord help you if you get too close with them with, to them with a peanut in their hand. Individuals with substance issues, if they can be practical and real about it, can defend themselves as well. It's interesting, though, isn't it, how we hold some people more accountable for things than others? And then we create that shame. I, I don't know if you're familiar with The Little Prince, the book The Little Prince. Oh, yeah. Chapter 12 of The Little Prince. If you get a chance, take a look at Chapter 12. It is... I think the best description of substance use, it's unbelievable. It's basically uh, little prince goes to, a, he's traveling around going to all these different planets and he comes to one planet where there's a tippler, the old word for an alcoholic, the tippler's drinking, looks very sad. The little prince says, you know, what are you doing? And the tippler says, I'm, I'm drinking. He says, why are you drinking? He says, to forget. Little prince, to forget what? And the tipper says that I am ashamed. And the little prince says, ashamed of what? He says, ashamed that I'm drinking, you know? And that's, that's the power of it is that, you know, we, we blame ourselves, which then devalues us. But the I am is saying, that's the best you can do. But if you don't like it, you can change it. And responsibility is different than shame and blame. And the I am is saying, you know, you can change this, but you have to understand why it's happening. And I think, Jeff, I think that's what your, your book is about, the workbook is, you know, it's, it's talking about how it's happening. Can, with that in mind, can you talk a bit about the chapter Falling Dominoes, why you can't have just one? Because I think that's such an important pivot point. It goes back to what you, you mentioned about triggers, what uh, I mentioned about you know, conditioned behavior and action without decision. I'm in Brattleboro, Vermont. The art museum for five or more years has brought kids in to set up a room full of dominoes in a huge, complicated configuration. 
and then there's a little lottery and some kid gets to topple the first domino and then eventually they all fall down they're all connected to one another and uh, when i was writing that chapter i went on youtube and watched a bunch of falling dominoes videos and once in a while the sequence will jam but usually if you topple the first one they all fall down and that's about gravity and physics i speak of the laws of nature that pertain to addiction and the continuation of addiction. Once these reflexes, in effect, have been set up, the behavior has been conditioned in at, at the level of muscle memory, limbic system, um, brainstem, maybe cerebellum to some extent, it's there. It's like you can't toss a basketball to, I know, LeBron James or some professional basketball player and expect that he'll hold it like he would a globe of the earth or a pineapple. Uh, something's going to happen with all that muscle memory. And basketball players may have trouble making a transition to soccer where they can't use their hands. It's the way that the nervous system and memory and these circuits are organized. I'm just like somebody can't unlearn riding a bicycle. You can't necessarily, if you're in deep enough with a substance use disorder or addiction, you can't unlearn it so that it makes sense. If you don't want it to happen again, you just avoid getting having anything that would topple the first domino because the rest is likely to fall. We all need less judgment and more acceptance. And if I'm so embarrassed about my need for help that I don't admit it to anyone and I hide out, that's not going to get me what I need. So, uh, yeah, make it more ordinary. Make it more mundane. Uh, in the workplace, I don't agonize before I call for tech support when something goes wrong with the computer or the electronic medical record. I just, like, do it. Because you don't blame yourself. You don't think yeah. that you've done something wrong. Well, I know my limitations you know, in that respect. Good point, yeah. So, you know, I, I want to just come back for a moment to some memory stuff. Because memory is basically in the limbic system. And what I'm remembering is that we didn't really talk that much about the prefrontal cortex. So I wonder whether we could do that. Make the rounds. Make the rounds. So um, for, I know, 20 years or so, most of the people I worked with had pretty compromised prefrontal cortex. Um, the last 10 years or so, I've been working in an outpatient setting. And people kind of have more resources. They're better able to influence their behavior with decision making and so, so jeff could you just uh, like remind the audience what what is the function of the prefrontal cortex what does uh, it do people call it the executive brain people talk about it connecting the creative emotional hemisphere with the logical symbolic hemisphere and when it's on its game weighing consequences and regulating behavior uh, or behavioral choices, assessing risks of one thing versus another. And so antis anticipating the future. In yes. Okay. Yeah. Great. Okay. So, and most of the population is pretty good at that. You know, there may be, I don't know, 10% of people who are in deep and need a lot of structure and help to get out. But a lot of people have a lot of ability to change things. And when it comes to use of substances, it's more complicated than people in the field have made it for the last umpteen years where the emphasis has been on abstinence from everything and working a particular kind of recovery program, which has worked for lots and lots of people. It's very good for lots and lots of people, was then, is now, yet there are a lot of people who won't follow that path or don't need to follow that path. And I sometimes speak of harmful substance use because people who have never abused a substance can die from a counterfeit 
pain pill or anxiety pill that's made out of fentanyl and they just swallow it once and they stop breathing and die. And that's because the fentanyl goes after the brainstem, right? Yeah, it shuts, it, it's, it's so sedating, the drive to breathe gets shut off. And that's a very primitive function, very low in the brainstem. Very low in the brainstem. I mean, it has to be, it is automatic. You are not aware of your breathing, your heart rate. And that's what fentanyl does. It goes right after those cells that control that breathing. And that's how people die. And teenagers, naive drinkers, somebody tries to show off and, and chug high proof alcohol and and they may stop breathing by the time the alcohol gets into their bloodstream because that can sedate that part of the brain also. Absolutely. What I would like people to do is become more aware of the risk that's involved with all these substances Mm -hmm. and evaluate all use in light of their own personal risk tolerance. Yeah, yeah. You know, the, the risk part is important, but do you think people, if people will choose between fear and pleasure, what would they choose between fear and pleasure? My concern is that we won't be able to scare people out of using, but we teach in the brain science. We say, this is, this is what's happening in your brain and you get to choose. And one of the things that, that we speak about, again, simplifying things a lot is the dopamine oxytocin interaction. Because we think there's research to show that dopamine, which is the brain chemical of pleasure, all drugs and alcohol force brain to make dopamine, interferes with oxytocin, not oxycontin, oxytocin, which is a neurohormone of trust. So do you think it's fair to say, I mean, again, simplifying, it's more complicated than that. But if you simplify it to dopamine interferes with oxytocin, so you can get high, but the price you pay is trust. You just decide which pleasure is more important to you. What do you think about that brain science? Is there validity to it, or can we just at least sell it to people anyway? With respect to this aspect of influencing people, I don't think so much of neurotransmitters and brain science at this level. I think more of the whole person and how we tick as a person. And and I'm impressed with the importance of recognizing autonomy. I know you do that too. Um, And as I get better at not judging people and validating their autonomy, they seem to get better at taking responsibility for weighing what's going on and being more careful about the risks that they take. I agree. And because you respect and value them, respect leads to value and value leads to trust and trust is oxytocin. And we know that oxytocin can break the loop of addiction. So there are all these brain sensing folks. First of all, before we go into the last part, how, how do people find you? How do they get the workbook? The workbook, The Two Pillars of Recovery workbook is available on Amazon. I think for a few more weeks, it's $7.95. The price is going to go up in a uh, few more weeks. So it's that, that is an absolute bargain. Even with the higher prices, a bargain. Folks, I'm, I'm telling you, it's, it's really, it's a wonderful read. And what's great about it is at the end, you've got workbooks. And so you contribute to your recovery. This isn't just somebody telling you a story. This is you recovering and being able to create a world where you can keep your distance and where you can ask for help. So those, those are very important. Jeff, you know, we're, we're coming to the end of the show and we talk about the, the two truths of the I am. 
Um, because the four domains interconnect, the home domain, the social domain, the biological, the IC, because they interconnect, a small change can have a big effect. We don't think you need to change everything, but I mean, keeping your distance is a small change. It can have a big effect. It may take a lot to do it, but based on what we're talking about tonight, what small change can you recommend to our listeners? In the moments of the day, appreciate and enjoy yourself rather than judge. Spill something on the floor, smile and clean it up mm. rather than curse and call yourself a name. That's great. Appreciate and enjoy yourself, which is similar to like having gratitude for yourself. Yeah. And it's a, it's a kind of gratitude in the moment. And the second truth of the I am, everyone has one. Everyone is interested in what you think or feel about them through their IC domain. We all want to feel valuable. And you know, it feels different when you feel respected or disrespected. So that has an effect on someone's biological domain. What this means is you control no one but you influence everyone and you get to choose the kind of influence you want to be. Dr. Jeff Kane, author of the Two Pillars of Recovery workbook. What kind of influence do you want to be? I want to stay out of people's way as they grow and find their path. On the side, I'm going to be hoping it's a more healthy path than they may have been on. And if they want me to collaborate with them as they find their way, i am be glad to do that. With or without the collaboration, I want to be there and not be judging, maybe in, be encouraging, perhaps with a smile or a gesture. Um, now, whether I'm working for an hour or more in a therapy session or passing someone on the sidewalk, I can be that way. And that's how I would like to be. So just a bit more. So stay out of people's way. How would you get in their way? Oh, if... <laughs> Dr. Joe, maybe you've never given a patient a lecture or tried to persuade them <laughs> rationally to do something different, but, uh, but I've done a lot of that in my career and uh, it doesn't help. Yeah. In fact, it, it slows things down. Understood. Yeah. Happy to, as one of my colleagues says, you know, come by someone's side, but I agree. I, we're not going to tell people what to do, but we can influence them. But we can't control them. And I think the greatest influence that is part of those two pillars of recovery is that, first, you are not alone. Mm -hmm. Ken Duckworth's great book for NAMI, You Are Not Alone. You can ask someone for help, but they're not going to ask for help if they feel they're going to be judged. So for all the folks who that person may ask to help, please don't judge them. That's a small change that you can make. That's an influence that you can have that will have a huge effect. I mean, really, we need to bring people out of the shadows. We're not going to be able to do that if we judge them. It's just not going not to work. So, Agreed. so I really think that's what the two pillars is, is really talking about. You know, Keep your distance from the stimuli, but ask for help if you need it. Never worry alone. Jeff, thanks so much for being here. Dr. Really Joe, appreciate thank you. it. Tom, and pleasure being you. with you guys. Okay, folks, we'll see you next week. <laughs>